Hello and welcome to Nudge, the only podcast dedicated to helping you understand consumer psychology. Many marketers listening today will have heard others ask, is marketing really needed? What does it actually do? Surely the product will sell itself. Often these claims and questions are backed up with examples. Tesla, for example, are one of the fastest growing brands in the world, yet famously have never spent a dollar on advertising. Procter & Gamble cut $200 million from its digital spend in 2018 and saw no decrease in ROI. It can leave us all genuinely wondering, what's the importance of marketing? Have we got it wrong? Perhaps products and services don't need marketing at all. Well, my guest today would strongly disagree with that statement. Phil Barden is owner and MD of Decode. He's written the best-selling book on consumer psychology called Decoded, and he's spent 25 years marketing for major brands like Unilever, TUI, and T-Mobile. Here's Phil talking through his career to date. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Firstly, thanks for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure to, to chat about my, my favorite subject. Yeah, I because I grew up in marketing, so I spent 25 years in, in client-side marketing, mostly with, with Unilever. I received a lot of wisdom uh, and that, that wisdom is sort of passed on and, and it becomes law, if you like, uh, about, you know, this is the way things work. This is the way we do things. And I first started to get an inkling that maybe it was not optimal when I was finding differences uh, between uh, doing research, for example, between what people said and what they then did. And, and I was scratching my head, you know, why, why do people say they would buy this particular product and then it fails in the market? And, you know, even to this day, we still see horrifying statistics such as 80 to 90% of 
new products fail in their first two years after launch. And so that's why I think there must be something that's broken. What, where's the missing link? And, and I, for me, I found that missing link. And I, I'm not claiming that it's a silver bullet. I'm not claiming it's perfect. But it, what I am absolutely saying is it's better than anything I've experienced hitherto. And that, that missing link for me was what I describe as decision science. And that is a loose term, and it's deliberately loose because it comprises learnings from a number of different fields of science so the hard sort of cognitive neuroscience uh, field as well as the different flavors of psychology both cognitive psychology and social and evolutionary psychology ultimately and the, the real crux of this is that ultimately marketing is about behavior change whatever we're doing whether we want people to like a post or we want people to buy a product or service or talk about it or whatever it might be it's about behavior change and i think it behoves us to turn to the people in the world who know most about behavior change and in my experience having sort of lived through this those people are scientists and academics because that's their jobs right they've been studying this stuff for decades and certainly a lot longer than the commercial world has the real the real proof if you like for me the real eye-opening jaw-dropping moment was applying these principles to the relaunch of the t-mobile brand i was uh, vp for brand development in europe and had to relaunch the brand and I'd, I'd commissioned some very lengthy and extremely expensive research around Europe and uh, and we were all scratching our heads at the results to be honest it just didn't feel right and someone introduced me to the guys who founded Decode uh, one is a neuroscientist and the other is a cognitive psychologist and they I think they taught me more in a year about why we buy the brands we do more in a year than I'd learned in 25 to be honest it was it was quite shocking and disturbing and actually frustrating and irritating as well to find that my worldview my mental models and paradigms uh, you know don't forget I'd grown up in a great marketing university which is Unilever and, and thought I knew it I thought I knew how brands work but I was wrong in some cases just completely and utterly wrong in, in other cases my views need needed modifying and and the real proof was was applying the principles to the relaunch uh, of, uh, of T-Mobile in particular the application of of what we call neuropsychological goals and what i've learned since is human behavior is is goal directed we are motivated to achieve goals those can be explicit goals they can be implicit goals and and employing those in the brief behind the ad which is now famous it's 10 years old but but it's still famous the uh, flash mob dance ad at london's liverpool street station um that one ad as well as having 41 million YouTube views, which, by the way, just to put it in context, is more than any John Lewis Christmas ad has achieved. And, and more importantly, it grew sales. That one ad grew sales by 49%. Uh, it went out on a centre break on a Friday night. And that weekend, within 48 hours, the T-Mobile stores in the UK were reporting that footfall had doubled from the norm uh, based on traffic people traffic monitors on the on the doors 
and I think that was the first time for me that I'd, I'd really seen uh, the power of this approach and, and reinforced my view that, that the marketing I had learned and, and which I still, a lot of which I still see reported and, you know, on social media and at conferences and whatever, that it's still out of date, sadly. And, and people are just missing a lot of really important fundamental principles about behavior uh, and how the brain works and how we make decisions. And honestly, I really think, given the T-Mobile example, marketing could become a whole lot more effective and efficient as well if it were to um, embrace a lot of these uh, these principles. Phil makes a great point here. HBR predict that 80% of new product launches fail. And a recent study by eMarketer suggested that 25% of marketing budget is wasted, that it gets no ROI. Clearly something is broken, and perhaps it's the lack of science in our profession. When Phil applied the science of consumer psychology to the T-Mobile dance ad, he created an incredibly effective campaign. According to the Institute of Practitioners in Marketing, ROI rose by 146%, sales increased by 49%, and market share grew by 6%. So how can we apply all of these principles to our work and ensure that 25% of our marketing budget isn't wasted? Well, Phil would urge everyone to first get an understanding of how consumers' brains work, specifically understanding the fast system one part of the brain and the slow system two part. For people who, who are not familiar with this, what, what Kahneman and others were proposing is that our mental processes have different characteristics. And he, he, he created these fictitious characters. He called them System 1 and System 2, just to make it easy for us to understand. System 1 is, is automatic. It's mental processes that are about reflex, and they are geared for action. So if you imagine, you know, pulling your, your hand back from a flame or whatever, you don't have to think, ouch, that's hot, that hurts, and then, and then the motor cortex is engaged. It just happens. So that's the hallmark of, of, of system one. System two, in contrast, is about uh, controlled mental processes. So the real distinction between the two is automaticity versus control. And controlled mental processes are the more reflective processes, which, which are easiest to think about as thinking, really. It's about reasoning and, and thinking. And if, whereas if I said, what's two times two, the answer automatically appears. If you say, what's 28 multiplied by 7.4, yeah, unless you had a very misspent youth learning obscure multiplication tables, you couldn't answer it automatically. You have to then engage system to the reflective reasoning system to uh, to work out the answer those who claim that marketing isn't important or that products can sell themselves don't realize how much thinking is done by the system one part of the brain take stats about attention towards ads according to phil's book we only spend 1.7 seconds looking at a magazine ad 1.5 seconds looking at a poster and just one second looking at a digital banner ad A product can barely sell itself in that time. Instead, marketers and business people need to understand that the brain is often irrational. Marketing is needed to cut through that and nudge people in a certain direction. 
Mostly, marketers do this by building frames around their products and services. This framing creates associations that people link with brands. I'll hand back over to Phil who explains the importance of framing by highlighting that a Starbucks coffee and a Wild Bean Cafe coffee are pretty much identical, yet consumers spend three times more on Starbucks. It's fundamental to marketing because ultimately the frame is what a brand is. We, we've always talked about the sort of fluffy, intangible magic that is, that is brand equity. And, and it certainly exists because otherwise we'd all, we'd all buy the same cars and the same clothes and the same watches. But of course we don't because we have come to learn over time through communications, through word of mouth, through our own experience, through who we see using brands and products and on what occasions, etc. We've come to build associations with those brands as being more or less instrumental in helping us achieve certain goals. So, you know, a cup of coffee, if you give people five cups of coffee and you don't tell them whose coffee it is, they'll they'll drink them and probably tell you that they're all good cups of coffee. But if you then say to people, you know, well, this is Starbucks, this is Cafe Nero, this is Costa, this is your local deli, whatever it is, then people's preferences change quite dramatically and the the famous study on this was coca-cola versus pepsi-cola when the colas are tasted blind i.e people don't know which brand it is then pepsi has a slight preference but when you brand the colas then coca-cola completely wins hands down even by the way when you give people pepsi-cola in the glass and tell them it's coca-cola they will taste it and say yes i prefer that coca-cola but they've actually just tasted pepsi the coke example phil gives will probably resonate with anybody who remembers the launch of new coke released in 1985 in the years preceding this release coca-cola was steadily losing market share to pepsi their pepsi challenge advertisements showed consumers tasting both cola drinks blind and saying conclusively that they preferred Pepsi over Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola executives took this as proof that their product needed updating. Clearly their flavour wasn't right, and if they did nothing, they'd surely soon lose their position as leaders. So they spent months testing new flavours of Coke, and in blind tests finally found something that people preferred to Pepsi. Excited with this finding, they rushed to market, releasing New Coke on April 23rd, 1985. As many of you will remember though, the decision became one of the most costly marketing mistakes ever made. Within just a few days, the company received over 400,000 phone calls complaining about New Coke. And just 77 days after launching, the product was recalled. What Coca-Cola executives failed to realise at the time was that blind tastes don't reveal everything. Our brains are irrational, and they change based on the frame around a product. Of course, in Coke's case, that's its brand, but it can be price or or something else as well. One study by German neuroeconomist Heike Plasman involved placing wine drinkers in an fMRI machine. The participants were given a cheap wine and asked to drink it. The researchers then monitored their brain activity to actually measure their exact enjoyment. The participants were then given the exact same wine, the exact same cheap wine, but they were told it cost eight times more. 
The researchers found a genuine, tangible increase in enjoyment and perceived flavour in all participants. So clearly our brains aren't rational. They make judgments based on a number of different traits, and a product's brand or advertising can be a massive part of that. I'll hand back over to Phil to explain this in a bit more detail. And that people are not lying about this. They're not being mischievous and, and making it up. They genuinely, their subjective opinions and preferences have changed because of the brand frame. And this, this framing effect is absolutely fundamental in, in marketing, in not only the brand, what the brand stands for. You know, the, the, um, uh, the Seat Alhambra, I think it is, and the VW Chiran and the Ford Galaxy are all built in similar factories using the same floor pan and the same um, components. And the switch gears are different, and of course the badging is different, and maybe the trim's a bit different, but they're all fundamentally the same car. And yet the willingness to pay differs dramatically between, between the three. We did some research for T-Mobile in Germany where we bundled the same set of telecom services um, we branded one ad T-Mobile, one Vodafone, and the third one O2, and we got huge differences in product uh, attribute ratings and willingness to pay. That was entirely driven by the brand because the products, the bundle, were identical. So the only thing that, that created that difference was, was the brand frame. If you show a general population sample of British people, a newspaper headline stating climate change bill to cost £100 million, their perception of whether that headline is positive or negative changes based on the newspaper logo that's put above it. In a fascinating study, researchers found that when placing a tabloid newspaper logo, like The Sun, above that exact headline, participants would claim that the climate change bill cost too much and that it wasn't a good idea. And yet, when the exact same headline was shown to the exact same people, but with the Financial Times logo instead, they would claim that the bill was a good idea, and that $100 million sounds like the right amount. The framing effect changes how news communications are viewed, and Phil says the same is true for marketing communications as well. And we see the framing effect present in, in many things, whether it's communication. So, for example, if you say to people, here are two half a kilo of ground beef. One of the, um, one of the half kilos is 90% fat-free, uh, and the other one is 10% fat content. Uh, and you ask people for their preferences and their willingness to pay. Generally, what happens is people prefer the 90% fat-free. Uh, and they think it's better quality and they're willing to pay more. Whereas, of course, it's identical. Obje objectively, it's absolutely identical, 90% fat-free versus 10% fat content. The difference is how the information is framed. And we, we also had a, found a framing effect with a, with a product shape. We did some testing on, on a face cream, and this was sent out in unbranded plain jars to different cities we got the results back and one city stood out as having very spurious results and we couldn't understand it. So we asked the client to trace back um, what had happened with the product that was sent there. And they said to us, oh, oh yeah, we ran out of jars. So we, we had to put the product in a different jar shape and the product was identical uh, in all the cities. But just the fact that it had been presented in a different jar shape 
framed the product differently and, and the research results we got were significantly different. Marketing communications can be greatly affected by the frame you build. Take charm pricing as an example. That's when brands use pricing ending in nine to make the price seem better value. An experiment run by MIT sent marketing mail out to three identical audiences. One promoted a $39 clothing item. Another promoted a cheaper $34 clothing item. And one promoted a slightly more expensive $44 clothing item. The results were shocking. Despite the clothes and the audiences being identical, people were 23% more likely to buy the $39 offer than the cheaper $34 offer. People have an association with nine ending prices that make them think it's a much better deal, even if it's not. If you ignore the framing effect, then you're less likely to influence your consumers. As Phil says, the same is true for product packaging as well. Priya Ragobir, a professor of marketing at New York University, found a direct link between the height of a beverage glass and the perceived volume. Because consumers think there is more volume in a higher glass, they actually think that beverages served in a higher glass are better value for money. UK beer drinkers will rate beers like Peroni as better value simply because it's served in a taller glass. Phil also gives a brilliant example of how Adidas created a very successful shower gel by taking inspiration from motor oil packaging. But before he gets into that, he explains the science behind it. A great example of this, and this is a study from 1910, where a German psychologist, Kohler, uh, showed people around the world two shapes. One of the shapes was very spiky and angular, and the other shape was, was soft and flowing, sort of cloud-like. And he said to them, the, these two shapes have got two names. You've never heard the names before, but tell me which shape is Takete and which shape is Maluma. And of course, everyone says, well, Takete is the spiky angular shape and Maluma is the soft round one. And, and the case in the shower gel was about signaling goals differently to competitors. So the, one of the neat tricks they did here was changing the, um, the packaging. So you can make the packaging sort of look and feel a bit more like uh, motor oil and sort of something that we associate prototypically with, uh, with uh, masculinity and power and um, strength. And those were the goals that, uh, that the, the brand wanted to, to convey. And so changing the packaging shape to look a bit more like that and something that you can hold that might, it might even feel like a, a, a sort of can of motor oil or even, even a weapon. Uh, is is often done with a sort of pistol grip contours around around packaging, and, and a great example of that was um, we had a we had a client who had launched a male deodorant and it, it wasn't working it wasn't achieving the results they wanted and they said to us we think the advertising's not working could you could you help us and we asked to look at the whole brand mix. And we looked at the advertising and we said, actually, we think the advertising's doing the job you intend it to. We think the problem lies in the product. And what they had done was for this can of deodorant, which was targeted at men, they had put a very delicate top 
on it, which, which you would need to remove before you could spray the deodorant. What they had, didn't understand, and, and, and why would they? Because they're not psychologists, but this, is, this shows the benefit of understanding this sort of stuff. When, when we make a, we, we pick things up, or even when we mentally simulate touching or holding something, there's, as well as the sort of motor cortex that's going to engage to, to do that physical action, there's a more emotional stroke psychological association linked with it. So if I'm going to pick up a, a can of deodorant and take off a, a delicate top, that requires a precision sort of pincer grip between finger and thumb. And the brain has learned that that type of grip is employed when we're dealing with something very delicate or refined. It's a bit like fine tuning. And that's very different to the positioning that the brand wanted for male deodorant, which was more about power and efficacy. You know, when men use deodorant, they tend to pick up the can and spray it a bit like a gun, right? Okay, it's sad, but but we boys are, are like that. And having this, this top on, which required a very delicate, precise movement, completely was inconsistent with that proposition of, of power and efficacy. It's not uncommon to hear people across the business world question the value of marketing. CFOs doubt it requires so much cash. Creatives cite Tesla's zero-dollar marketing budget as proof it's not needed. And developers believe products are good enough to stand up on their own. Yet there's literally no evidence to suggest that's true. We pay more for a Krispy Kreme donut over a Greg's donut. We pay more for Virgin over T-Mobile. And we pay more on a VW Galaxy than the exact same car a Ford Chiran. All of this is because of the frame the marketing builds around a product. Remove that frame and you remove the value because in all of those examples, the product is essentially the same. Massive thank you to Phil Barden for joining me today. He's a real legend in the consumer psychology space and his book, Decoded, is a must-read for anybody looking to change consumer behaviour with marketing. I've put links to both his book and his agency, Decode, in the show notes. And if you want to make sure you don't miss Phil's next episode with me, click the link in the show notes to sign up to our mailing list. I'll send you an email every time an episode goes live so you'll never miss another show. One final thing from me, if you're enjoying the show or you have some feedback, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to know what you think. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge. Thank you.